And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. It's another Monday as we get get the week underway. You know, this weekend... I was at home and my wife's flitting around the house and she's making snack trays and she's very excited. And I couldn't really kind of figure out what's going on. She goes, I go, what are you doing? She goes, football's coming on, turn on the game. And she's making a snack tray and then she goes, I'll be right back. So about halftime, I go to check on her. She's taking a nap. She had me turn it on. She's treating me like a toddler <laughs> to keep me entertained. <laughs> so she got her nap in. I got to watch football, so it's all I good. I predict a lot of good napping weather <laughs> for football season this year. I, I would for our local that, fans. That would probably be the case. Uh, anyway, lots of stuff going on. Uh, so if you weren't watching football this weekend, the rest of the world is still continuing to move forward. Um, a couple of things to get into. Well, uh, you know, kind of big news this week, of course, is we'll be looking at CPI coming out on Wednesday. Um, Oracle announces earnings this morning, so we'll kind of get, you know, one of the last kind of, you know, they're not a mega cap, you know, seven company, but still one of the bigger technology companies. We're getting very close to the end of earnings season, uh, so we're getting to the last kind of the final major reports. But again, the, the big drivers this week will be CPI, PPI. Now, interestingly enough, when you talk about CPI uh, in particular, lots of kind of conversations recently about this kind of tick up in oil prices and something that we had talked about in this weekend's newsletter is you know lots of people running around right now going oh my gosh this uh, uptick in oil prices that's going to feed into inflation we're about to have another big surge in inflation and energy makes up about seven tenths uh, sorry about seven percent of the cpi calculation and you know yes you know higher energy prices will feed into headline but again, it's only about 7% of the CPI calculation. And more importantly, what the Fed looks at in terms of inflation is inflation less food and energy. So yes, while energy may feed into CPI temporarily, um, you know, there's not gonna be a big impact or a big shift in the Fed's outlook because that's, you know, they, they don't look at that including energy because of volatility. The bigger news in terms of inflation, the thing to watch is the homeowner's equivalent rent part of the index, which the Fed does look at, and that makes up about 32% of the overall index. So again, when you take a look at the index, what drives the index? Yes, you know, 7% increase in oil prices, certainly an input into inflation, not discounting that, but you've got a 32% drag on that index coming from housing prices, which are still under pressure right now. So again, be careful with some of the headlines. We actually covered this in good detail uh, in this past, past weekend's newsletter. So if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the newsletter link under the Insights tab, you'll get the latest report, and, uh, and we go through that. Make sure you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. We mail that every Saturday. comes to your email inbox. Uh, lots, of, lots of information there, market statistics, stock screens, all kinds of stuff to help you manage your portfolio better. Uh, that comes out every Saturday morning. I generally have that out about 8 o'clock in the morning, so you'll have it um, by the time you're starting your first cup of coffee. So there you go. Um, uh, last week, kind of the big news, of course, Apple took a fairly big hit, and uh, Apple was down about 6% over just two trading sessions. And again, lots of concern here because, again, Apple is one of those mega cap seven that have been driving the overall markets. And this news, of course, was 
on the impact of China telling their uh, kind of executives that and their corporate leaders that they can't use Apple products. So again, Apple took a hit from that because of Apple's exposure to China, not surprisingly. But again, that didn't really impact that much uh, the overall NASDAQ, which again, Apple's decline was pretty much offset by rallies in uh, you know, Amazon and Google and Tesla and other companies. So again, despite the fact that Apple is one of those big mega cap sevens and certainly under pressure temporarily, that big, that big bite out of Apple last week didn't really affect the NASDAQ much, which continues to kind of hold on to key support above the 50-day moving average this morning. Futures are pointing higher as well. Apple also has their big unveiling event coming out tomorrow. That's the release of the iPhone 15, which you'll be able to get for a cool $25,000 and a seven-year mortgage. Just joking. <laughs> it's close. I don't know exactly the price yet, but it'll be expensive. Um, but anyway, that comes out tomorrow. News on new watches, potentially, uh, potentially new, new iPods. So again, uh, tomorrow will be a big kind of reveal day for Apple about their whole new line of products coming up just in time, of course, for the holiday shopping season. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. The uh, markets, of course, as I said, just with the NASDAQ a second ago, again, the big seven continue to drive the overall market. If you take a look at the differential between the S&P 500 market cap weight and the equal weight index, the equal weight index is pretty much flat for the year. Again, the vast majority of this market rally this year driven by those top seven stocks. This morning, Tesla is set for a pretty big move higher, about 6.5% on an upgrade over the weekend from Morgan Stanley. But again, the S&P 500 sitting right on support right now. Again, within this rising bullish trend after this correction that we had, of about 5% in August. That held key support, also the bullish trend going back to, to earlier this year. So again, absolutely nothing wrong with the markets right now. Still on a buy signal, not incredibly over, uh, overbought here. So again, no reason to really worry. September continues to be that kind of sloppy trading month and something that we kind of have been talking about to expect. So again, not surprising. We still kind of continue to see this market working sideways here as we kind of continue through the month. And, and again, as we continue to kind of look at this kind of rising bottoms that we have, we have this declining top, we're building this kind of compression within the prices of the S&P 500. So again, a breakout to the upside here would be a, a breakout for that kind of end of the year, October, November, December rally. If we get it, of course, the downside of that, if we break to the downside of that compression, that's not so good. So what happens next? Look, it's anybody's guess right now. But for now, at the moment, the bullish trend remains very positive. The economic data remains okay right now. Again, nothing really, uh, you know, kind of in the short term, nothing out there that's going to kind of derail the markets at this point. You know, again, lots of concern as we move into next year, of course, about recessionary issues and something we'll talk about this morning. Uh, was from our Friday post talking about the spread between gross domestic product, gross domestic income. We'll talk about why that's a, a, that's a problem from a, re a recessionary standpoint. But again, right now for the markets, there's really nothing to really be overly concerned about. You know, outside of the fact that we're talking about an index driven by about seven stocks. Again, underneath the surface, the performance of the overall market remains very weak. You know, outside of those top seven stocks, there's not been a lot of, uh, of gains really across the board 
for investors. And, and again, when you take a look at the of, of kind of the equal weight index and what's been happening uh, this year uh, in that index in particular, it has not been particularly a great year for investors overall outside, uh, again, of those seven stocks. Um, and again, if we go back to taking a look at even the small and mid cap stepping down out of the S&P 500, going back to small and mid cap stocks, they continue uh, to remain under fairly significant pressure. Testing, they are testing support here at the moment, but again, have basically gone nowhere uh, now for since October of last year. So uh, again, coming up on a year where small and mid cap stocks have done absolutely nothing. So again, we go back and take a look at the breadth of the market certainly remains strong. If you're just looking at the surface of the S&P 500 index, it's certainly a woohoo moment for the S&P 500. But again, that's really a woohoo moment for only those top seven to 10 stocks outside of that. It's been a pretty tough and challenging year for investors really kind of across the board. Uh, when we come back though, uh, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Now, when we come back from the break, <laughs> we will get into uh, this idea of what's happening with the economy. I want to explain a little bit about how the economy actually works. And this is something that a lot of people miss uh, when we talk about economic data. So we'll get into that right after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, and you're listening to The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts, of course, as we get this uh, new week underway. Again, already, already heading up on the middle of September. September the 11th, of course, today. Um, you know, a day we shouldn't forget, going back to 2001, of course, and the terrible tragedy that happened then, you know, as we kind of get further into life, you know, here 22 years later, um, you know, we start to kind of forget important events in history and Again, it's, a, it's always a good day just to take a moment to remember what happened on this day in 2001. 3,000 plus lives that were taken. So, again, just take a moment, you know, to remember. I remember, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's certain days in your life that you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing. And, you know, like the day you were married, of course, um, the, the, you know, the day of the birth of your first children. I mean, you remember these things regardless of what happens in time. And that is one of those days, I think, when you ask most people if they were alive then. And I remember we've got a whole generation that's coming up that was, were born after the fact. My children, uh, in particular, were too small uh, to really remember anything at that point. Um, my oldest was born in 2000, so he was only a year old when this happened. So... You know, again, when we take a look back in history for those that were alive that that had things, they remember exactly where they were at the moment that it occurred. And for me, I was I was in I was in my office um, and I'd gone into one of my partner's uh, offices at the point. This is with a previous firm I was with. And we were talking about the market and he had a small little nine-inch television that he had on his credenza behind his desk. And you know, he always had the news on, so it was CNBC or, you know, Fox Business, whatever it was. And so I'm sitting there standing at the desk. We're talking to him about 
we're, we're talking with each other about portfolios, and he was our technical analyst at, the, at that point in time. And so we're talking about the markets, and, and so I'm kind of just watching the TV screen, and this single tower is on fire in New York City. And, and so the, the cameras are all you know pointed at this single tower, smoke billowing out of it. And, you know, they're talking about how this plane had just flown into this tower and into the World Trade Center. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm talking with my partner at the time. I'm like, how does a plane fly into a building? Right. Did the guy have a heart attack? You know, what happened? You know, it's just, you know, because you think about it, you think about these big commercial airlines and, you know, they've got GPS, they've got, you know, all kinds of communications and radar and everything else. I mean, how does how does a plane, a commercial aircraft fly into a building? It's just beyond comprehension. And as this conversation is going on, and this is just a few seconds between me and my and my partner at the time, the second plane hits the building. And then all of a sudden, it's that immediate recognition that something terrible has just happened. But again, it's, it's, it's that moment in time that you never forget. And there's those moments in your life that you have good and bad, unfortunately. We always remember some really bad things that happened to us as well. But that is an, an indelible moment in the lives of pretty much every American that was that was alive at that point. I had very dear friends that worked in the World Trade Centers that were lost. Um, several big financial firms had employees and people that we worked with at the time were in that building. And so, you know, I got, you know, it, it means a little bit more to me because I lost friends than maybe people that didn't. But I think regardless of who you are, if you're an American, this is a moment that that we should not ever forget and just let it kind of fade into the analogs of history, but something that we should pay homage to. You know, we we have holidays for everything, right? We got a whole month dedicated to LBGTQ. We got, you know, a whole history, a whole month dedicated to African-American history. I mean, we, we have these months that we dedicate to this. You know, at some point, I'd like to see a day dedicated to remembrance of what happened on 9-11. Okay, that's my little speech this morning. Talk about something really depressing, the economy. <laughs> I'm joking. So over the, uh, on Friday, I wrote a article looking at the economy. Again, one of the big head scratchers so far this year has been why we haven't had a recession. I mean, because in 2022, everybody was convinced we were going to have a recession. Economic analysts were downgrading their estimates for economic growth rapidly in 2022. The recession was assured in 2022, yet it didn't happen. And so when we take a look at analysts, and their expectations, uh, Citigroup City has an index, and it tracks how often analysts are right or wrong about their estimates. And so if the data comes in worse than expected, then the surprise 
goes down, right? And then, of course, if the data comes in better than expected, then it goes up. Well, during 2022, analysts were ratcheting down expectations, but the data was coming in even worse than their expectations. So they kept ratcheting down their expectations. The data would come in worse. The economy was slowing down. Remember, we had two negative quarters of GDP growth in the beginning of 2022. And so as analysts always do, they began to think that, well, the data is only going to go down forever, right? It's never going to recover again. So their estimates keep getting worse and worse and worse, and the data keeps getting worse, you know, keeps underperforming them. And then they get so negative that the data begins to come in better than expected. And so consequently, as, as you would not be surprised, they begin to ratchet up their estimates. And this is what's happening right now, of course, is as economic data has been beating the pants off their more dire predictions of a recession, Analysts are now going, oh, no, we're, there's no chance of a recession now, right? Recession's over. Everything's fine. And so now we're kind of set up for the next bout of, of economic disappointment, most likely, as we head into next year. But the reality is simply this, is that while analysts are expecting this strong upgrade in economic growth, economic growth is going to be mired at much lower levels, and this is because of the debt. And... Beginning in really, you know, kind of 1980, right? This is where we deregulated the banks and everybody could get credit cards and we just ratcheted up household hold debt as fast as we could. And we created this kind of economic boom through 2000. But from 1947 to 2000, the economy grew at about 3.2% on a real inflation-adjusted basis. Following the dot-com crash that began to slow down some. And then following the financial crisis, the, 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 the growth rate of the economy fell to about 2.3%. Following COVID, we have stepped down that economic growth potential again because of the debt and this massive ramp up in debt. And we'll probably be growing at sub 2% going forward. And this is just a, a long-term impact of the debt on the overall economy. Now, one thing about this, and again, as we talk about the economy and, and all those type of things, there's multiple ways that we can measure the economy. And, and one thing we talk about quite often here is financial conditions and what that means. And so if we take a look at the amount of debt we have in the economy, and we take a look at things that are related to debt, like lending standards and interest rates, we can create a financial conditions index based on interest rates and lending standards. And we find that when those conditions are tightening, as they are now, and again, you know, I'm showing a chart right now of the financial conditions index versus GDP, and I've inverted the chart on financial conditions. And, and what you find is, and not surprisingly, there's a very high correlation between those two measures and the economy. And what those two measures are telling us is that a recession is likely coming, which just hasn't happened yet. And the reason that a recession is likely coming, and this is the mistake that economists make. In the economy, there is a cycle to how economic growth works and where economic growth comes from. And right now, economists are falling all over themselves, analysts as well, you know, ratcheting up earnings estimates going into next year. They're saying, oh, we're going to be at all-time highs on earnings next year for companies. Well, earnings have to come from revenue. 
revenue has to obviously come from the economy. But we're an economy that's 70% driven by consumption. Now, we can stimulate consumption by giving people money, which we did in 2020, right? We gave people $5 trillion worth of checks. But in an operating economy where you don't have these stimulative checks being sent to households, consumption is the byproduct of production, right? And so there is a virtual, or not virtual, sorry, virtuous cycle to the economy that begins with, I got to go to work. Brent's got to show up. He's got to produce something. He's got to earn a paycheck. Once he earns his paycheck, he can go home and he can pay his electric bill. He can pay his utility bills. He can buy food. He can, you know, buy flowers for his lovely wife. He can, they can go out to dinner and eat together, right? They can take a trip to see their kids in, in Tennessee, whatever, right? But none of that happens unless he has a paycheck. And this is the part that economists forget is the income side of the equation. And when we come back from the break, we're going to discuss why that income side of the equation is a lot worse than you think it is. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning talking a little bit about how the economy works and um, just making an important point here about what comes first you know, it's, it's the old chicken and egg thing. And actually, scientists have now come to the conclusion that the egg did come first, I think, uh, was the latest conclusion. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's always been the age-old question, what came first, chicken or egg? Well, in the economy, it's really easy. What comes first? You have to produce first in order to consume, with the exception of when governments are sending you money directly, right? So X that one event in a normal economic cycle. You have to produce first, then you consume. And then as you consume, of course, then that creates demand for businesses who then hire more people. As they hire more people, that gives more people jobs. They then consume, which creates more demand. And that's how you get your virtuous cycle within an economy. You know, right now, we've got a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, we talk about these exceptionally strong job reports. And there's an important factor about these employment reports that you need to be aware of. You know, first of all, we regularly hear um, the White House spokesperson talk about how President Biden has now created more jobs than any other president on record. 12 million jobs. Well, that's not really the case. It's great for a media headline. It's not true. We All we have done since shutting down the economy is replace the number of workers 
actually, let me rephrase that. We didn't replace them. We just hired them back. We didn't create new jobs. We just hired back the people we told to go home and not work. So you didn't create any new jobs. And in fact, if you take a look at jobs, right, in order to have a robust economic growth, it requires people working full time. You know, working multiple part-time jobs is fine. If I work three multiple part-time jobs, I'm not counted as full-time employed, even though I'm working full-time, right? I'm doing it three different companies. If I'm working part-time jobs, they generally don't pay as much as a full-time job plus benefits, et cetera, that I get from a full-time employment. So what really drives economic growth over time is full-time employment. And if we take a look at full-time employment relative to the working age population, We are only back to where we were pre-pandemic, which was lower than where we were going into the financial crisis, which was lower than where we were going into the dot-com crisis. In fact, since 2000, we have continued to generate fewer full-time jobs relative to the working age population. This is why economic growth continues to grow at slower rates over time, and debt continues to accelerate. Now, what do I get when I work full-time? I get a paycheck. So when we look at gross domestic product as a function, right? That's the product. So how do we get to gross domestic product? What, what is that calculation? Gross domestic product is the function of personal consumption expenditures. That, that's about 70% of the calculation. I add into that... Government spending, the Inflation Reduction Act, as an example. Business investment, what businesses are doing. And the net exports, which is imports minus exports. I add all that up, and that gives me my gross domestic product. But again, in order to have the production side, I have to have the income side, which is the income generation of the economy. And this is the part, again, that we often overlook is that income side of the equation because that is a very big, important part of this entire cycle. And so where do I get, where do I get gross domestic income from? It's kind of obvious, but it's wages, profits, interest income, rental income, taxes, production and import subsidies, and statistical adjustments, right? So... Just by thinking about this for a moment, you don't have to be a rocket scientist here, but when we take a look at gross domestic product versus gross domestic income, they should track fairly closely, right? Because again, if I'm going to consume something, I've got to produce something. So the income I generate should equate roughly to my spending, right? The gross domestic product. And and that certainly is the case. In fact, if we look back, you know, across recent history from 2016 to present, you can see there's a very close correlation except for recently. There's a fairly big divergence happening right now between gross domestic income, which is actually declining versus gross domestic product, which is going up. And again, part of that gross domestic product rising is coming from that Inflation Reduction Act, that $1.7 trillion in federal spending. So all that, those billions of dollars are getting fed into 
the overall economy right now, which is creating this illusion of gross domestic product at the same time that incomes are falling. And again, that shouldn't theoretically be the case. And in fact, we can prove this if we look back going to 1947, we can measure the difference between gross domestic income and gross domestic product. Has there ever been a previous point in history where there's been a gap between income and production? Yes. And each one of those, by the way, we're currently at a record gap of income to production. But each one of those generally occurred in or prior to a recessionary spat within the economy. Which is exactly what you would think. Because again, there can't really be a gap between income and production. So as soon as the Inflation Reduction Act runs its course, incomes and production have to catch up with each other. So either GDP is going to decline to catch up with GDI, or we're magically going to have a massive surge in income that will catch up with GDP. It's generally the former, which is exactly what you would expect. And so when we take a look at, you know, just kind of thinking about this on, on a bigger macro basis that uh, and, and you consider where we are talking about financial conditions, um, you know, the 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 underlying driver of the economy. Again, you know, we have student loan payments about to restart in October. You've got fairly tight financial conditions, no matter how you measure it, interest rates are elevated um, lending standards are tight. So again, all those factors that you feed into this global picture suggest weaker economic activity, not stronger. And, and uh, again, this kind of undermines the whole idea of this no recession scenario that economists are touting right now. Now, look, I'm not saying that we can't avoid a recession. We certainly could. But again, when we come back and, and look at all the other things that go on within the overall economy and how the economy works, and most importantly, this, let's go back to the very basic fundamental fact of the economic, the virtuous economic cycle. Production leads to incomes, which I then spend, which creates revenue for companies from the company's revenue. That's where they generate their profit margins, their earnings which if those are stronger, they hire more people because demand is high. And then you start the process over again with more people, which equals more demand, which equals higher prices, more economic growth, et cetera, right? But if incomes are declining, something has to give. And so this idea of ratcheting up earnings going into 2024, the expectation of stronger economic growth in 2024, seems to be a bit at risk here. Not today, not this week. Doesn't mean the market can't rally into year end, because it certainly can. Again, markets run on psychology in the short term, fundamentals on the long term. And in the short term, psychology is clearly bullish. Longer term, the fundamentals are going to matter. And right now, those fundamentals still suggest that the risk of recession is prevalent. And again, the fact that most economists now are talking about no recession, it actually, I know it doesn't make sense, but the fact that they're not expecting a recession actually gives the recession a chance to actually occur now, as opposed to what we saw in 2022. 
again, I, I don't I don't want to leave this segment without saying, sure, this time could be different. There's a lot of things going on in the economy right now that are different, right? This 1.7 trillion in stimulus, the student loan repayments, all those type of things. We've had a lot of factors that have been supporting economic growth over the last couple of years. Again, we've talked about the massive amount of monetary supply relative to GDP, which is still very elevated. And that can keep this economy humming along for a lot longer than you think. It's kind of like my daughter with her gas tank. You know, as soon as the light comes on, she's like, should I fill up now or do you think I can make it home from, from school? Surprisingly, she can drive a long way with that light on before it runs out of gas. But that's that's right now, you know, we have that engine light on, you know, for the economy, but it's still going at the moment. So sure, this time could be different. It just usually isn't. And that's the one thing that we just need to be prepared. Timing, though, is always the hard part. All right, come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so jm smucker is nearing a deal to buy a hostess this is great news Think about the think about the options here, right? I, I don't need your comments, Brent. Just don't ruin my jokes. You have a terrible habit of ruining my jokes halfway through. Please continue. Okay. Seriously, uh, headline this morning: Twinkie uh, Twinkie's owner, Hostess Brands, is closing in on the sell to J.M. Smucker, a move that would marry the two big names in snacks. This is a deal likely worth something in the neighborhood of four billion dollars. Could be announced on today, on Monday. Assuming talks don't hit a last-minute snag, Smucker um, so far has beaten out Cheerios and uh, uh, General General Mills, who is the parent of Cheerios and Betty Crocker. So Smucker's in the, Smucker's in the lead right now. But think about this, right? Jelly-filled Twinkies. I mean, right? You know, cherry, strawberry, raspberry. I mean, the the, the possibilities are endless on this and uh hostess sales topped about 1.3 billion in 2022 that's up from 1.1 billion the prior year and besides its signature jellies ohio-based smucker brands includes jeff peanut butter folgers coffee milk bone dog treats and frozen crustless sandwiches known as uncrustables which ironically are the life staple of my two kids in college right now (laughs) 
I am dead serious. It's like, hey, can we send you, you know, my wife puts together these care packages and the only thing they want is Uncrustables. And it's like, <laughs> just send us Uncrustables. I'm like, can't you buy your own? Don't you want like homemade chocolate chip cookies? Nope. I need Uncrustables. That's so they're keeping smuckers in business. Um, anyway, so this this opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Now you can make your jokes, Brent. No, no, I I had already posted my joke this morning. Which was jelly-filled Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think. I wonder if it'll increase the half life, the shelf life of, of Twinkies. I don't. I, it, it's going to reduce it. <laughs> As far as I know, Jucker's, uh, Smucker's jelly doesn't last. No, it doesn't. A hundred well. years, right? <laughs> I think there's people still selling original Twinkies on eBay that are still in the wrapper. So, oh yeah, <laughs> so like like thirty years ago, they're still. It'll be you know after nuclear devastation, Twinkies yes. and roaches. That's all it'll be here. Finely aged, <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, getting ready to wrap up the show this morning. Uh, be sure and get by the uh, website. This weekend's newsletter, I tackled this whole idea that, uh, again, as I mentioned this morning, that oil prices are going to create a surge in inflation. Uh, oil prices have had a very decent run here as of late. They're very overbought. So I would start to expect probably a cooling in oil prices, at least short term. Uh, again, commodity prices you know, run on technicals more than anything else, and those have gotten pretty extended here. So start looking for kind of for a bit of a cooling in oil prices. Um, but again, oil prices only make up 7% of the inflation calculation. The much bigger component is homeowners equivalent rent, which is declining. And that runs a pretty significant lag in the CPI calculation. Um, so it, you know that will continue to kind of filter in over the next several months, uh, that drag in housing prices on CPI. And again, when the Federal Reserve looks at inflation, as we mentioned this morning, they strip out food and energy. So you know what the Fed's looking at is the core, which is inflation less food and energy. And this really kind of is important because as we start to approach um, – the next Fed meeting, which is not this week, but the next week. Um, this is where the Fed's going to start really kind of talking about their stance in monetary policy going forward. You know, are they done hiking rates? And expectations are rising that we have probably seen the last rate hike, at least for this cycle. And, you know, still, there's officials out there still prefer, you know, they're going to keep the language. Right. They are going to keep the language that they are watching the incoming data. And if they need to raise rates, they're OK doing that because their their feeling is, is that if they raise rates too much, they know what they have to do. Right. So what does that mean? If they raise rates too much, they're going to cause a financial crack or a recession in the economy. They can deal with that. Right. That's easy to deal with. I just do QE and I cut rates back to zero fairly quickly and I can resolve that issue. So their tools that they have in their, their, their desk, so to speak, to deal with a crack in the financial economy is simply this return of monetary accommodation. If I just throw enough money at it, it'll be fine. We'll just bail out everything and it'll be okay. So they're not worried about the risk of over-tightening, right? They're, they're worried about the risk of under-tightening and that inflation just kind of continues to keep going up. But, you know, we've probably seen the, the peak of inflation for this cycle, and again, I think over the next you know few weeks, few months, 
you know, we'll start to get a better sense that the Fed has probably done hiking rates at this point. But again, you know, we'll get the inflation number out on Wednesday. We'll get PPI out, PPI out on Thursday. Again, the Fed's looking at both of those, X energy and X food. So doesn't have a big driver on their, their thought process. But as we get further out into the year, those are probably going to continue to remain under pressure as economic growth continues to slow back towards the longer-term sub-2% growth rate. And again, this is what the Fed said at the last meeting, was that they aren't really that concerned um, about inflation right now. And in fact, there was a lot of calls for them to raise the neutral rate, which is the rate of inflation that matches economic growth. And Jerome Powell was very clear. He's like, no, we don't need to step up the neutral rate to 3%. We're at 2% because that's where everything's going to revolve back down to. So in other words, 2% is neutral rate, which means economic growth is going to be 2 and long-term projections of the Federal Reserve and economic growth is 1.8. So there you go. That's you know ultimately where we're headed, as we said earlier, that, all, that is all going to be a function of the long-term growth trends and the impact of debt on the overall economy. But uh, again, the shift towards a more balanced bias on rates is going to be important. Uh, uh, and this is particularly the case for the financial markets. One of the reasons that, that tech stocks, particularly the mega cap stocks, have been doing so well this year is on this idea that the Fed is going to be cutting rates. Lower interest rates are better for long-duration assets like stocks, particularly tech stocks, growth stocks, which are dependent on earnings growth. So lower rates allow for higher rates of earnings because I, I remove some of the interest cost on debt to the, to the income statement. So lower rates better for longer duration assets. That's why tech stocks have been rallying here. And this has all been on the function that, okay, next meeting, they're going to start cutting rates. Next meeting, they're going to start cutting rates. So, so we've been rallying these tech stocks. We're now getting to that point that the Fed is probably going to be done hiking rates. The question, though, and again, this is what we always get back to, is why would they cut rates? Again, we just said that some officials, let me read to you from the Wall Street Journal, some officials still prefer to err on the side of raising rates too much, reasoning that they can cut them later. So again, if I'm cutting them later, I'm doing that because I've broken something, I've created a recession, an economic downturn, whatever it is, and now I've got to cut rates. And why am I cutting rates? I'm cutting rates to avoid deflation. See, deflation is a mental mindset that is much harder to break than inflation. Once you get into a deflationary spiral within the economy, and this is always the big risk, this was a big risk during the uh, financial crisis, is that everybody just assumes the market's going to zero. Everybody assumes that prices are just going to keep going down. So instead of buying something, I'm going to wait because prices just getting, keep, keep getting cheaper. So deflation is a very tough spiral to break because everybody stops spending money, which creates more deflation, which means more people stop spending, which creates more deflation. And you get this, this, this vicious downward spiral in psychology and deflation. So it's a very hard thing to break. So the, the, the worst thing, the, the thing that the Fed fears the most is, is deflation. And that's why they're quick to cut rates. They're quick to drop rates to zero. They're quick to start monetary accommodations because deflation is a very tough cycle to break. Fed officials raised rates, at, again, from the Wall Street Journal. Fed, Fed officials raised rates at 11 of their past 12 meetings, most recently in July, to the range between five and a quarter. 
They appear to be in broad agreement to hold interest rates there at their September 19th and 20th meeting. That's coming up next week. And, of course, what they'll say is, is we just want to give time for the economic data to tell us what to do next. We're going to be data dependent. And one thing they've been very consistent about is talking about the lag effect of monetary policy. And the problem is, is for economists, they're going, well, we haven't had the recession yet. And we've, we've been doing this for over a year. We've been hiking rates since March of last year. So we're more than a year into rate hikes and we still don't have an economic recession. So this time is different. This time is different because you had a tremendous amount of monetary liquidity liquidity poured into the system, moratoriums on payments, um, you know, just a whole variety of, of different financial supports from extended unemployment benefits and child tax credits and you name it, just dumping tons and tons and tons of money into the system, which kept economic growth growing. But all that is now ended and we still have the lingering effects of that monetary excess in the system, which is creating this gap between GDP and GDI, as we talked about in the last segment. But ultimately, GDP will have to catch down to GDI. It's just going to take longer to get there than we expect. So in the short term, everything's fine. The risk seemed to be more apparent once we get into 2024. Wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. That article we went through this morning on the website was Friday's blog post talking about economic deviations. Uh, of course, also oil prices and inflation. That's in this weekend's newsletter. It's all at the website. Make sure you subscribe. Um, we have lots of stuff there. Our daily market commentaries as well as our newsletters and more. It's all at the website. It's all free. Email them right to your inbox. You never miss any of them. And also, please do us a favor and click on the like button for this uh, video as well as subscribe to the channel so we always keep you up to date on our latest videos. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow for the next edition of The Real Investment Show.